At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a culture filled with promises for a better life, deeper satisfaction, and greater purpose, but how do we know which is right? We invite you to join us for Smoke and Mirrors, deciphering truth in a world of truths, where we'll look to scripture to expose the illusions of our culture, and together, hold fast to a better answer, God's. You ever seen a platypus? real. They're like really, really strange looking creatures. I brought a picture just so you can see what I'm talking about, just in case you haven't. Uh, they live off the east coast of Australia. And in fact, when Europeans first encountered them, they thought it was a joke, right? Like they thought they were being punked by the locals because it, it just looks like a hybrid, I don't know, Frankenstein mix of other kinds of animals that we all know about, right? Like it has a beaver-like tail, uh, the bill like that of a duck, and its feet are actually webbed, kind of like an otter's for swimming. And these things are obvious. You can see it just by looking at it. But what you may not know is that while a platypus is a mammal, it also lays eggs. Kind of strange. <laughs> or how about this? It's actually one of the few venomous mammals. I had no idea. Crazy stuff. There, there's, there's so many fascinating animals in this world. My kids love learning about them. They have those channels on, the Discovery Channel, all the time. And I find myself walking by and I'm like, what are you watching? And then I'm like sitting there just glued to it. <laughs> you know, it's just so incredible. All, from the microscopic organisms like bacteria and viruses, all the way to giant killer whales. And to think that of all these creatures, God made us the most unique. Because human beings have a conscience, right? We, we are self-aware. No other creature in all the world has this very unique capacity. I mean, we love dogs, right? But they don't contemplate their existence. And cats are okay, I guess. But, but they don't wonder about the meaning of life, right? It's humans who are blessed with the intellectual and spiritual capacity for self consciousness and, and the ability to reason and think. And so while animals are great, they're primarily driven by their instincts, and human beings have the ability and the desire within themselves to search for something more, something deeper when it comes to meaning and purpose in their lives. We want to matter in this world. We, we want to play a part in making it better. And if you were to sum that up, this desire, in one word, I think it would be the word ambition. Now, Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines ambition in a couple of ways. The first way is what many of us think of when it comes to the word ambition. That it's an ardent desire for rank, fame, or power. But the second definition is really important for us today, and that is the desire to achieve a particular end. And so when we talk about that this morning, when, we're, when we talk about ambition, what I mean is the drive within us to move towards a particular end, something that is larger, something that is bigger than us for an ultimate meaning and purpose in life. And we all, we all have this. So it's not necessarily a question of whether or not you have ambition. You do. The question is, to what end do we have ambition towards? Or, or who or what determines what this ultimate vision that we are working towards is? And so 
Over the last few weeks, we've been studying through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. In the sermon series, which we've titled Smoke and Mirrors, because the world is full of promises that you will find meaning and purpose in life in so many different ways. But it's all a lie. It's all pretend. It's all smoke and mirrors. That's the conclusion that the preacher of Ecclesiastes comes to as he is evaluating the meaning and purpose of life under the sun, right? That is life here on earth. And then like a scientist testing a hypothesis, he pursues all kinds of various meanings and purposes in life to see what the result is for him, what they would bring him. And so far, we've seen him explore naturalism. We've seen him look to intellectualism. And we've seen him look at hedonism. And all of them, he finds meaningless. And so today, he turns his attention toward another potential source of meaning, and that is ourselves and our own personal ambitions. Now, you've probably heard this expressed in various situations today, you know, in our current culture, when people say something like, oh, it's okay, man, you do you, right? It doesn't concern me or anybody else. It's all about you, the individual, your own desires, your own ambitions and achievements for your life. And this is what some people would call uh, individualism, right? The idea that we can only really find true meaning, purpose, and satisfaction in this life if we focus on ourselves. And so if you haven't already, would you please join me in your Bible uh, or your Bible app uh, to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 12, as we read what the preacher has to say about this topic of individualism. He says, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what's already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And so here we see that the preacher leaves, once again, no stone unturned here in his search and his pursuit to find ultimate meaning and purpose in life, because once again, we see him consider both wisdom and folly. Now, specifically, speaking of folly, last week the preacher uh, shared how he sought meaning and purpose in life by living for pleasure, holding nothing back, indulging himself in whatever he wanted in order to find that satisfaction. So he built magnificent buildings, right? He created beautiful gardens, he, he listened to whimsical music, and he complimented it all with the finest of wine and women, like lots of women, okay? never abstaining from pleasure or restraining his appetites, and yet he found that even that was meaningless. So he says, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Right? Only what has already been done because he's the king. He, he's the wisest and wealthiest of them all, and he has searched high and low through good and bad, through wisdom and folly to find meaning, purpose, and satisfaction in life, and he hasn't found it, so neither will you. No one will. It's all vanity. It's all striving after wind. That's the conclusion of his experiments thus far. And then he changes direction, right? In, in some ways, this is the pendulum swinging back from the area of folly back towards the area of, 
of wisdom and knowledge again. And we understand this, right? We've all experienced something like this. What do you do when you're looking for something? You start in the most obvious location. You start in the most logical place. And then when you don't find what you're looking for there, what do you do? You move on. You go to the next place and you look for it somewhere else. But what inevitably happens if you don't find what you're looking for there or there or there? You eventually go right back to the beginning. You go right back to where you started. Why? Because maybe you missed something, right? Maybe there's something there that you overlooked. And that's kind of what we see happening here is that as the preacher looks back on his life, In everything he's done, he says, it's clear to me that wisdom has far more gain than folly. It's better, right? It's so obvious to the preacher that he likens it to the difference between living in light or living in darkness, between having the ability to see versus being blind, right? Because wisdom allows you to see, to to intelligently navigate your way through life instead of blindly bumping into things, foolishly stumbling around over over the various obstacles of life. And so clearly one is better than the other. And since the preacher is still left lacking in his search, he returns his attention back to the area of wisdom. Just this time it's from from a, a little different angle, right? This time he's looking at wisdom through the lens of our personal ambition and achievement. See, the preacher is a person who has reached the pinnacle of success in life. And it wasn't through dumb luck. It wasn't through uh, an inheritance or anything. It was through hard work, right? Diligence with his wisdom and his ambition allowed him, it drove him to his success, to his personal achievements. They were his end goal. And it brought him a lot of success in the world as, as the king of Israel. And so this is really important for us to understand because what we are talking about in many ways is the American dream, right? Where, where we are often told, that, listen, you can have whatever you want if you're just willing to work hard enough, if you're just willing to, to use a little wisdom and make some good decisions along the way. We are told to pursue our dreams at any and all cost because that is where you will find ultimate meaning and purpose and satisfaction in your life. And so in the end, it will all be worth it. But is that true? The preacher does not think so. In fact, he ends this section by adamantly denying this as a valid means to find any kind of meaning or purpose in life. Just like all the previous endeavors that he's pursued, he says individualism and our own personal ambition is vanity. It is striving after the wind. It is meaningless. And so the question is, why? Why does a man who's achieved so much, at least in the eyes of the world, why does he feel like those ambitions and those achievements are meaningless? Or to put it another way, why don't personal accomplishments ultimately satisfy? Why don't our accomplishments ultimately satisfy? So let's pick this up at at verse 14. He says, And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. 
how the wise dies, just like the fool. So the preacher points us to two reasons why he's concluded that the pursuit of achievement for our own gain is ultimately meaningless. And the first reason is that regardless of, of whether one lives wisely or foolishly, whether you achieve a whole lot or very little, the same thing happens to us all. Death. Death is the great equalizer on the playing field of life for the preacher. And even before death, we, we understand where the preacher's coming from, right? Because bad things happen to good people. And so the preacher has said that, yes, wisdom is far better than folly. I will give you that. That is true. However, just because you choose wisdom doesn't mean that you won't experience pain and suffering in this life. There are, are many times when things happen to us that we just have no control over, no explanation for. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 5.45, that God makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, that he sends the rain on the just and the unjust. And so we see this. We, we struggle with this tension, this kind of thing, all the time, you know, in, in this life. However, the preacher is taking that thought, right, that, that attitude, and he is drawing it out to its final conclusion. Okay, that in the end, it doesn't matter if you're wealthy and you're wise or you're poor and you're foolish because the same event will happen to both. Death comes for us all. And I was thinking about this a little bit because our family owns a cottage on Mullet Lake. It's right off the water in a, a little village called Toppenaby. But for reference, the closest city is Sheboygan, if you're familiar with it. That's where uh, the supermarket is, it's where the hospital, the medical facilities, the, the movie theater, all, all the fun kind of things that people want to do. And there's a little ice cream shop there called the Big Dipper. It's a really cool spot. Um, they have a checkered floor. They have a whole area that's just a, a malt milkshake bar. Everything is handmade, it's hand-scooped, and they only take cash. It's, it's literally like stepping back in time. It's so cool. But aside from being on the lake at the cottage, this is one of the, the highlights of our time when, when we spend it up there. We all look forward to going to the Big Dipper after supper and enjoying some ice cream together. But this last trip that we took, we actually got some sad news uh, that this might be the last season that the Big Dipper was going to be open. And it wasn't because of COVID. Uh, it wasn't because business had slowed down. Certainly it hadn't. There were lots and lots of people there. It was because the owner had passed away. She died. And here's the interesting part. We found out that, that she had specifically written in her will that none of her children could buy or take over the business. Plot thickens, right? <laughs> like, why? We want to know. And so, Obviously, someone has just passed away. You know, we, we want to be sympathetic and empathetic towards the family. We don't want to pry. We don't want to ask too many questions. Believe me, if anybody would have, my mother-in-law would have been there. But she, even she had the, the, the knowledge to know, like, this is not a good time to do that, right? But that didn't stop us from speculating. <laughs> we still thought about this. And so we thought, well, maybe, maybe it's because, you know, she has numerous children, and she didn't want anyone fighting over it. She didn't want any quarreling. She didn't want to cause a rift or division among the surviving family members. Or maybe it's because she didn't want her children to feel obligated to carry on this business after she'd passed away. 
right? She thought that even though none of her family actually wanted it, that someone would take it over anyway, drastically changing their family's lives just to keep what was her dream and her business going, that, that they were going to sacrifice a lot for this business as a sort of memorial to keep her memory alive. And, and, and she didn't want that. Truth is, we don't know, <laughs> right? These are, these are just thoughts, they're theories. But after reading and studying this passage, I can't help but wonder if while she was by all means successful in the world's eyes, right? She, she'd made some smart choices. She'd built a small, very successful business. She'd done pretty well for herself, providing for her family. I can't help but wonder if as her life came closer to an end, if she didn't begin to relate to the preacher, saying, sure, I, I've done all these things, <laughs> I've accomplished so much in, in this area of my life, but in the end, I can't help but feeling like it's all vanity. Like it was all striving after the win. And she found herself asking, was it even worth it? See, one of the reasons that living for accomplishments or achievements can leave us feeling so empty inside is that no matter who you are, at some point, all of what you've accomplished goes away. Now, you might enjoy it for some time, maybe a little longer than some others, but at some point, death comes. And everything that you've accomplished, everything that you've acquired in this life is taken from you. And in fact, as the preacher continues, he, he takes even this line of thinking to an even further end. He, he gives us the second reason here why he has reached this conclusion that accomplishments and ambitions just don't satisfy. It's not only because death comes for everybody, but also because our achievements are eventually forgotten over time, right? Verse 16, for the, of the wise is of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. And so the preacher, again, is a man who has achieved much. We are dealing with a man who's not only wealthy and accomplished a whole lot in his life, he is the elite. He is the king, literally. And even though he is the best of the best, once death comes, all of what was his will be taken away. And as if that wasn't enough, people's memories of the preacher and all of his accomplishments will only fade over time. The wise person dies just like the fool. And over time, they're all forgotten. Achievement and ambition seem meaningless when you look at them in comparison to the constant movement, the constant continuation, the constant march of time. And so the preacher looks at these two realities in front of him, of death and the fading of memories. And in verse 17, he says, so I hated life. I hated life. As he considers ambition and achievement as a source for meaning and purpose in his life, he finds it absolutely empty because ultimately when we live for individualism, focusing only on us, striving for our own accomplishments and to make our name great, it cannot satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. So what do we do? What is to keep us from falling into the same pit of despair that the preacher finds himself in, where we just want to give up on life? Well, the preacher gives us a clue. In verse 17, when it comes to finding true meaning, purpose, and satisfaction in life, verse 17 goes on to say this. He says, so I hated life. Why? Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For it's all vanity 
and striving after wind. We, what we recognize here and what we've seen really throughout this whole book is that the preacher is drawn into despair because he only looks at life under the sun. He only looks at life here on earth, meaning without God. And so the point of Ecclesiastes is to remind us that if we are going to find true meaning, purpose, and satisfaction in life, then we must look beyond what happens here on earth. We must look higher. We must look to God. And when we do that, we realize an essential reality when it comes to achievement and ambition. And that is that God is supreme. God is supreme. And therefore, the end of our ambition and our achievements must be pointed toward him, not us. God would remind us of this very thing through the prophet Isaiah when he says this, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. So God reminds us that, that he is supreme, that it is his glory, and his glory will not be shared with anyone else. In other words, no matter what we strive for, no matter what you achieve in this life here on earth, we will not eclipse God. I read from Romans 11 a couple weeks ago, which says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? The Apostle Paul continues by saying this, Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And so God's mind is unknowable. His ways are inscrutable. And no one counsels him because he is also the end. Everything in life, from, from the tiniest atom to the largest galaxy, is from him. It is through him. It is to him. God is supreme. And therefore, everything is ultimately about him, including our lives, our ambition, and our achievements. Everything we are and everything we have is to make much of God. It's kind of like the moon. Right? The moon is wonderful. It, it, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, to see a full moon on a, on a wonderful summer night, it's just an incredible thing to behold. But at the same time, you understand that the moon doesn't radiate any of its own light, right? It is only magnificent and majestic because it reflects the light of the sun. And so you can imagine what would happen if the moon were to usurp the place of the sun, if it were to replace the sun at the center of the universe, all of a sudden the entire universe would be in darkness. It would be cold. It would be depressing and discouraging. And it wouldn't be long before things would start to die. See, the moon doesn't produce its own light, but that doesn't mean that it has no purpose. The moon is important. It serves a glorious purpose, but that purpose is only found when it is in alignment with the reality of the centrality of the sun. And the same is true for us, right? So scripture is not calling us to reject ambitions or to deny the desire to achieve great things. The question is more about who is at the center 
of those things? Is it you or is it God? If God is supreme and we are God's people, then our ambition should be for his glory. Our achievements, the things that we do should be to make much of him so that he is worshiped. We're not created to be the sun at the center of the universe. We are created to be the moon, to beautifully reflect the glory of God to all creation, revealing the centrality of Christ. And this is one of the reasons that the gospel is such good news. Because we don't just look at what happens under the sun, but what happens above it. The word of God is focused on God. It tells us of God's wisdom, God's ways, God's accomplishments, his victories. And the amazing truth that we see is that God shares his victories with his people. God shares his victories with his people. We actually uniquely see this in the passage, but only when we think about it inside of the larger narrative of Scripture. Because what the preacher highlights as the great equalizer in all of life, death, becomes the very thing that ultimately displays God's greatest victory. Because Jesus, the very word of God, became flesh. He lived among us, and he lived a perfect, sinless life of obedience to God the Father. Not just as a demonstration of what the Holy Spirit can do in our lives, not just as an example of how we should live, although it is, but as a substitute in our place, See, Jesus didn't just die for you. He lived for you. And so on the cross, Jesus takes the holy wrath and fury of God for our sins, for your sins and for mine. And in exchange, we are then gifted with Christ's perfect record of righteous living before the Lord. And because of the person and work of Jesus in our place, we are then forgiven. We are redeemed. We are adopted into the family of God as fellow heirs with Jesus. All because God took the worst thing that this world can throw at us, physical death, and he used it to bring us to spiritual life. Now that alone is an incredible truth. But let's not be content to leave it there. You see, sometimes I feel like in our eagerness to accept that forgiveness, that we're content to leave Jesus on the cross. And that's not the end of the story. Friends, Jesus did not remain on the cross. He did not remain in the tomb. The Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead. He was glorified. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father, where he is now ruling and reigning over all things. And all of that is a part of our identity in Christ because God shares his victories with his people. So just like the preacher, let's follow this line of thinking. Okay, let's draw it out beyond our time here on earth and let's look at the ultimate end which it takes us to. And that is the redemption and restoration of all things. We read about this in the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation chapter 21. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. See, God loves and cares for his creation. And just as he is redeeming and recreating you, he is going to redeem and recreate the world. And so the Bible doesn't describe people escaping earth and going up to heaven. Instead, it describes heaven coming down and transforming the earth. And we will enjoy eternity in the presence of God in a physical existence here on the new earth. But things are going to be different. Things are going to be better. For instance, there's no temple, right? Because God's presence is everywhere. There's no need for even the sun or the moon anymore because God's unveiled glory will give light to all the nations in eternity. There's no sickness. There's no COVID. There's no cancer. There's no more pain and no more death. Why? Because Jesus, once and for all, is victorious over sin. He is victorious over Satan. He is victorious over death itself. And God shares his victories with his people. You understand, this means that death is not the end. And so for those who believe in Jesus as their Lord and their Savior, we're not only brought to new spiritual life now, in the present, but we also have the promise that we will be glorified. We will experience a physical resurrection from the grave. Now, if that sounds strange to you, this also sounded strange in the first century church, right? People had questions about this thing. What do you mean? We're going to raise from the dead here? And so the Apostle Paul addresses this very thing as he writes to the church in Corinth. It's in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, they're struggling with this idea of a physical resurrection. They're asking questions. They say, how can it be? Right? How is this going to happen that the dead are going to be raised? Hey, you know what? What kind of body are we going to have? And so Paul looks at them. He says, you fools. Don't you understand? I mean, you're farmers, right? You plant seeds in the ground and you watch them transform and grow. Well, a seed is, is small. It, it's, it's fragile. And in fact, when you plant it in the ground, that seed has to break down and die in order for new life to come forth. And the plant that comes out is bigger. It's more beautiful. It is better than just the little seed. And in the same way, we all have different earthly bodies that break down, that die. But from its death comes a bigger, more beautiful, glorious, heavenly body. And so then Paul begins to compare and contrast the earthly bodies and the heavenly bodies. He says this, starting in verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. He continues, verse 47, For the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is a man of heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. But as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. 
just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So when we say that we have been brought to new life, eternal life, it's true of us in the spiritual sense now, right? Immediately. But we have the promise that one day God will recreate and restore the physical to match the spiritual. So for those who take their eyes off of this world and look to God, they see that God is supreme. He is over and above all things, including death. And we are invited to find true meaning and purpose and satisfaction in life in him and in him alone. Because God is supreme. This is the conclusion that the preacher leads us to here, that when we live for ourselves, we wind up empty. When we make our ambition and achievement all about us, in the end, it feels meaningless because we can never earn our way into heaven or put God in a position where he owes us anything. It's all vanity. It's all striving after the wind. But when we turn our attention away from the things under the sun and focus on God and what he has done through Christ, we realize that everything is from him, through him, and to him. And so we make him the center of our universe where our lives revolve around him and we strive in our ambition and in our achievements to make much of him for his glory. That is when we find the very meaning of our lives. It's only when we are firmly planted in Christ and in Christ alone. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.